I jokingly said to someone last week, I want, Chad got a mint. Chad, I, I wanted green M&Ms. They're all green. I don't know what's on this, but I'm scared to read it. Some of you, I know, have physical copies of God's Word. If you have a Bible, hold it up. Okay, now some of you use your phone. If you have a phone, hold up that invention. Okay, now I'm taking notes. <laughs> Somebody texted me yesterday while I was preparing for the message. And this person said, could you give us updates on the chief score? Because the Chiefs are playing in Germany this morning. And her initials are Sue Parrish. <laughs> and I just want you to know that I took note of everybody who has a, a Bible on their phone versus who has a physical copy. And don't look at me like you're looking up the Greek on something. If you're, it's a sin to check the score of the Chiefs game until, until we get I'm just I'm just decreeing it. I, oh, mercy. Okay. Well, th those are all divisible by a holy number, so I guess that's acceptable. I want to say that what an honor it is to, to stand in this pulpit. Um, we have been significantly and abundantly blessed these past two months, haven't we? When... Chad preaches, you might as well be having a cup of coffee with him. It, it is just heartfelt and loving and just the Holy Spirit is with him. And Chris Brody is a master teacher. I mean, when he gets up and elucidates about the Word of God, it, it is spirit-filled and, and you walk away enriched. And so I just, I just wanted to say that publicly about those two men. Now, since we find ourselves gathered together here the week marking the start of the Reformation some 500 years ago, uh, when a monk born to a minor in Saxony nailed his 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg, having been convinced of the doctrine of sola scriptura, perhaps it is fitting for us to consider our text this morning in light of a German word, Hausgeschichte. Y'all didn't expect me to speak in tongues this morning. <laughs> Jacob, we'll have to have an interpreter. What's Heilsgeschichte mean? Salvation history or redemption history. That is the ancient and holy purposes of God accomplished through his people. Consider the redemption history that we've seen thus far in Acts. Christ has ascended to his heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father. He has baptized his church with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Peter and the apostles have been proclaiming Jesus with great boldness, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, that Jesus was bodily resurrected through the power of God, that Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father, and the apostles have been calling on all men to repent of their sin. We have seen miracles of healings that themselves preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, especially 
the lame beggar at Solomon's portico in chapter 3. And we've seen thousands upon thousands of souls saved, even quite shockingly, some of the priests at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I always want us to catch the beauty of how the story is told in Acts, not just the facts being conveyed. To that end, let me remind you that Paul would later write to the church at Galatia that he had been entrusted to take the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to take the gospel to the circumcised. But Luke is telling us something with how he places the story of Saul's conversion within this broader narrative. The second half of Acts, as you know, largely focuses on Paul taking the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world, especially to the Gentiles. Acts 15 is the climactic center of the book. That's where we read of the Jerusalem Council, the great first council in church history. The meeting concerned a controversy about circumcision, triggered by the refusal of Paul and Barnabas to force Gentile converts into adherence of Mosaic law. So Luke here is letting us know something in how he structures his book. That Gentiles being welcomed in the kingdom of God without having to pass through Judaism is not some crazy Pauline idea. So he places, listen to me, he places the conversion of Saul and his preaching to Jews in Damascus and Hellenists in Jerusalem, that is culturally Greek Jews, right between the two Philip stories from chapter 8 and Peter bringing the gospel to a Gentile Roman soldier named Cornelius in chapter 10. That is, you have Philip going to Samaria where they convert in town after town and where the spirit falls on the Samaritans when Peter lays hands on them. And you have the story of Peter going to Cornelius' house where the spirit falls on the Gentiles as Peter is preaching. And right in between those accounts, we have the man who would become the Apostle Paul preaching not to Gentiles, but to Jews in Damascus and Hellenists in Jerusalem. So chapter 9 begins with the conversion of this Saul of Tarsus, a man who, upon a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, goes from breathing out threats and murder against the church to being filled with the spirit of life. He's divinely commissioned to carry the name of Jesus Christ before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The scales having fallen from his eyes, and Saul, having been baptized in obedience to Jesus Christ, I now ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving 
that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. I want to take a moment and draw your attention to that last verse. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word so there tells the reader as a consequence of what you just read, the church was being built up. So what have we just read? Of course, we've read that God has saved Saul, which we discussed in my last sermon a couple months ago. And we've seen today that Saul is now one devoted to preaching Jesus Christ. And two, that Saul is devoted to Christ's church, which in turn is devoted to him. This dual devotion to Christ and his church is what leads to peace among God's people and their edification. And that in turn moved the early church to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It is in this way that God's kingdom expands in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So we will discuss four things this morning. One, Saul's devotion to preaching Jesus Christ. Two, the mutual devotion of Saul and the church to one another. Three, walking in the fear of the Lord, and four, walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Upon his conversion, Saul set about immediately proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues in Damascus. And once in Jerusalem, we read that he was preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. We may ask, what was it that Saul was proclaiming exactly? Well, when Jesus sent out the 72, he told them to teach, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Acts ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome. Yet just like Christ's original disciples, we read that he is, quote, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He would have preached that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. 
and that all those who have believed in Jesus have been raised with him through faith. Paul would have been preaching that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Therefore, Paul would write to the church at Rome, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Saul, in other words, this Pharisee of Pharisees, the tribe of Benjamin, the scholar who'd studied at the feet of Gamaliel, was proclaiming that man was justified by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ and not works of the law. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Thus, Paul would pen to Titus, his true child, and I say to you this morning under the authority of sacred scripture, dear friends, we must declare these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. And so with boldness and without apology, Saul was proclaiming Jesus Christ in the synagogues in Damascus and preaching the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. But Saul didn't simply proclaim Jesus. He didn't just announce the resurrection and move on. In verse 22, we read that he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by what? By proving that Jesus was the Christ. And to do that, he would have had to appeal to the scriptures, the word of God that had been given to Israel. Paul's first sermon in Acts is found in Acts chapter 13. He and Barnabas were at a synagogue in a town called Antioch in Pisidia. There Paul explained to the men of Israel and those who fear God that Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of all the scriptures and all the hope of Zion is found in him. And we bring you the good news, Paul said in that sermon, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, that is justified from everything from which you could not be freed 
by the law of Moses. Isn't that a sweet word? I assure you that whether Paul was preaching to Jewish leaders at Damascus or Hellenists in Jerusalem or in churches all over Asia Minor, his message was the same. Salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And like Paul, we can indeed must proclaim this gospel boldly and with great confidence. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Paul would write to his son of the faith. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Therefore, command and teach these things and devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And in so doing, we are to be like Paul and never, quote, shrink from the declaring the whole counsel of God. In Sylvania, I implore you this morning, forsake not the whole counsel of God. For it is a lamp to our feet, and it is a light to our path. For the word of God is living and active. And Ollie, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we have seen in this text first Saul's devotion to preaching Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see Saul's devotion to the church and the church's devotion to Saul. Saul had been roving around looking for Christians, men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. When all of a sudden, he was surrounded by a blinding light from heaven. And the voice of our Lord could be heard calling, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you? Lord, I am Jesus, came the response, whom you are persecuting. Thus, Saul got a lesson from Jesus himself that the church is the body of Christ. And Saul took that teaching to heart. For it is plain that Saul wanted, yea, needed to be near the brethren and within the church of God. So he stays with the disciples in Damascus immediately following his conversion and then sets about to meet with and sit at the feet of the apostles in Jerusalem. And as a result of this man's preaching and his display of love of God's people, Saul is twice has to endure and survives attempts on his life. Did you see that? First from the Jewish leaders in Damascus in verse 23, then from the Hellenists in Jerusalem in verse 29. Now I want you to catch again the beauty of the story here, the glory of the Heilgeschichte. Stephen's martyrdom begins with his devotion to the church, where he was a feeder of widows. It also begins with his preaching Jesus Christ, just as Saul here is devoted to the church in preaching Jesus Christ. Stephen's accusers were Hellenists, those Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia. 
The Hellenists take their false allegations to the Jewish leadership, which results in Stephen's trial and concludes uh, after his sermon with Stephen seeing Jesus Christ standing now by the right hand of the Father. And then we see this Saul of Tarsus overseeing the whole thing and receiving the unholy sacrifice of cloaks of murderers being laid at his feet. Now, though, it is Saul who has seen Jesus. And just as all Israel, the Hellenists and the Jews, set in judgment on Stephen, so now all Israel, the Hellenists and Jews, set in judgment on Saul. Just as our Lord was judged both by the high priest and all the crowds of Israel. But where Stephen could not be saved from the murderous hand of Saul, Saul is preserved through the tender saving hands of his friends, the very men he so recently persecuted and hated. All according to the foreordained plan of God who decreed that Saul would be his vessel his chosen instrument to carry the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In other words, God is ensuring his kingdom would expand. Jesus is doing exactly what he told Peter he would do at Caesarea Philippi, where upon hearing Peter's confession, Jesus promised, I will build my church. Just as Joshua's spies would be secured by providence, with Rahab letting them down by a rope through the window for her house was built in the city wall so that God's people could inherit the land, so Saul is let down the city wall, helpless in that moment as Moses floating down the Nile, lowered as a babe in a basket. But though he looked helpless, we know that he was empowered by the Spirit of God who was going to preserve his man for the mission to which he was called. And as the house of Rahab was covered by a scarlet thread preserving her from destruction, so the Saul of Tarsus has found that the propitiation of Christ's blood is a vermilion shroud over this heretofore slaughterous man. The spies reported back to Joshua, truly the Lord has given us all the land. Paul would come to understand that the land promised to Abraham and his offspring wasn't about some crimson stained soil in the Middle East. And it's not about some crimson stained soil in the Middle East. But that the offspring, those born of grace, would be heir to the whole world. Not through the law, but through the righteousness of of faith. The church at Jerusalem, you'll note, was reticent concerning Saul. Jesus told his disciples to be wise as serpents, but innocent as what? They needed to know here for their safety, for the safety of their flock, whether this was a ruse. And if not an intentional trick, they wanted to know if this man was a true convert. See a man-made Christian or see a God-made Christian? Because only one of those is real. Remember when Philip the evangelist brought the gospel to Samaria and soul upon soul believed in the Lord Jesus. And we read that even Simon the sorcerer believed. But he was a man-made Christian. He was impressed by the signs done at the hand of Philip 
and greater still upon seeing how the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of Peter's hands, such that this man, Simon the sorcerer, sought to purchase the power of God. May your silver perish with you, Peter said, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The man-made Christian is the rocky ground where the seeds spring up since there is no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they were withered away. Oh, he'll endure for a while, Jesus said. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So what kind of Christian is Paul? See a fake man-made Christian or see a God-made Christian? And how does the church know? Enter Barnabas. This Levite, this son of encouragement, if you had read Acts straight through, you would note that he's only been mentioned once so far in the book of Acts, and that was in chapter 4, where we read that he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That is, in a series of stories Luke gives us about sacrifice or offerings. The account of Barnabas selling his field is immediately followed by the account of the false sacrifice of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 which is then followed by the wicked stoning of Stephen and the unholy offering accepted by Saul of the cloaks of those who killed a godly man. So now this giver, listen to me, this giver of a good and acceptable offering, Barnabas, comes to the aid and defense of this one who had seen fit to preside as executioner over the bloody death of a saint ceremonially receiving the garments of those who did that venomous act. It is Barnabas, in the presence of the apostles, who declares that Saul is, in fact, a God-made Christian, that is, a true Christian. A man who had been born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Barnabas serves as a witness for Saul, the truth of his conversion, how he'd seen the Lord on the road to Damascus, and how he'd preached boldly in the name of Jesus. In this moment, perhaps the Christ-like prayer of Stephen is remembered. For having fallen to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The Lord heard that prayer of his fallen saint, and he answered it in abundance when he saved Saul. Let me tell you, if we are devoted to preaching Jesus Christ and thereby build up the church, and if in this church we are devoted to each other and thereby live in peace, then I assure you, just like at the end of our text today, we'll be walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
Building on the new covenant theme from chapter, one, chapter 31, Jeremiah 32 contains this from Yahweh. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This fear is not a fear of punishment, nor is it a fear of retribution. Instead, it is a fear that leads to awe. A fear that should move us to delight in him. For in fearing Yahweh, we actually are being Christ-like. And I want you, those of you with a real Bible, uh, so that you can resist temptation, don't look on your phone, uh, turn with me to Isaiah 11. And we're going to read the first five verses of Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide what disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. There is no doubt, there's no doubt that that text refers to Jesus Christ, is there? The gospel writers agree that Isaiah 11 refers to Jesus Christ. And yet twice in that passage, that shoot from the stump of Jesse is referred to as having a fear of Yahweh. We are to have an awe-filled fear of God and serve him as Christ did and does, seeking to do his will with new hearts given to us by the Spirit. And we should walk not only in the fear of the Lord, but in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Our church, Sylvania Church, has needed a lot of comfort these past weeks. Our dear friend, Larry Green, has passed away. That is a sweet saint of God. The mother of Emily Bentz passed away. The Skinner family, too, has needed great comfort, haven't they? And that's to say nothing of everything else we've seen this year. But I have news for you. Josh, the 
The Lord said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you are. What, what, what is, do, you, what, do you have your FanDuel account open, too? Well, the name Joshua says you will deliver your people. And, and I think that you need to be delivered from that tablet. Is your wife in here? Where's Crystal? Oh, you are going to have an in-the-car discussion. My whole marriage is based on not having an in-the-car discussion when I leave a public place. All right, bless you and keep you. Um, and as Josh knows, we, what I was going to say, and as Josh, Jared knows all too well, we all need comfort. Every last one of us needs comfort. Jesus said that the Father would send the comforter to us, the paracletos. I don't know. In Alabama, Chad, they probably say paracletus. Paracletos. That's the same root word for comfort here, paraclesi. And what it really means is someone's advocate. A paracletos is one who pleads your cause. It's what Christ does when he intercedes for us with the Father. It's what the Spirit does with us when he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's what Barnabas did for Saul in Jerusalem. He was being an advocate for his brother, wasn't he? And we need to likewise walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, being an advocate for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, praying, how do we do that? Praying for them without ceasing and displaying the kindness and goodness of Jesus Christ to the glory of his name. And it is in this way that the kingdom goes forth, that the story of Hyogashikta is told, it is in this way that the church of God is multiplied to the glory of the precious name of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die as a propitiation for our sin. Thank you for adopting us as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. And thank you for this beautiful story, this story of the conversion and of, the, of, of Saul, and for the example of the church welcoming him in, this man who had been their enemy, now their friend, the church being Christ-like and welcoming in a former enemy. Thank you for that. Cause your Holy Spirit to move us this week. Bring to mind those for whom we need to pray. Cause us to be comforters in this body and within our households and our homes. And move us to display the love of Christ in all we say and do. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.